Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zooarchaeology. This is episode 56, Paleoenvironmental Reconstruction. What it is and what does it do? I'm your host, Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me as always, Simona Falanga. So yeah, we are kind of... We kind of led into this topic, but we are talking about paleoenvironmental reconstruction finally, even though I guess we were kind of hinting at it in the last couple episodes. I mean, we talked a lot about different animals, you know, from your moist, moist frogs and toads of amphibians to kind of scaly snakes and lizards of reptiles. And finally, in our last episode, we talked about the tiniest little mice and vole that make up mammalian microfauna. And that, everyone, was all a ploy. <laughs> Heard it here first. Because, I mean, while a lot of the species that we covered so in the last few episodes you know, were species that we had not previously covered, there was a secret reason why we decided to dedicate the entirety of the last few episodes to those specific Teensy little species that I like to call the, the micro-zooarchaeology because, surprise, secret miniseries. Boom. Yeah, it's actually been a secret miniseries for our paleoenvironmental reconstruction. And boy, am I going to trip over saying that multiple times in this episode because it's kind of a mouthful. Paleoenvironmental reconstruction. Ancient environment. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it boils down to. I mean, the paleo environment. Sorry if you hear some some tippy tapping. The the my dog has decided to very clumsily climb on the bench. There you go. Welcome. Tell us more about mice and rats. Yeah. Riveting. <laughs> yes. Always opinionated that one. But yeah, as we have noted in previous episodes, a lot of the animals we've covered, so your amphibians, reptiles, small mammals, and birds can be used as an indicator of environmental characteristics and the way they uh, they may or may not have changed over time. My dog was proceeding to try and lick the plate of the Nutella wrap I just had, and uh, boy, no. So yeah, these kind of indicators uh, are really extremely useful for paleoenvironmental reconstruction. But, you know, what exactly is paleoenvironmental reconstruction? Now, Simone has kind of alluded to it, unsurprisingly, it has to do with the past uh, and the past environment. So we can use a variety of evidence from archaeological sites to somewhat accurately kind of sort of reconstruct the past paleo environment of the given site that we're working on. Now, most of the evidence which is useful to paleoenvironmental reconstruction comes from the environmental evidence or ecofacts, which is largely recovered from environmental soil sampling. 
Yeah, been a full as a quick, very quick aside. Promise for those who are not familiar with soil sampling. I mean, it's pretty much in the name, as it's a collection of samples of soil from a given archaeological horizon, archaeological features. You know, depending on what kind of where in the world you practice your archaeology, and the soil samples are then processed for ecofact and sometimes artifact recovery. And to be honest, it can take a variety of forms depending on what sort of evidence you're after so you can do so like all sorts of fancy like geochemical analysis you can sample specifically to get pollen but i mean largely soil sampling is usually well just that is sieved either dry or with the aid of water it's so much fun it's a great workout actually if you're sieving especially when you use those really big sieves and you're just kind of like shaking it back and forth i've never done the water one which i've heard is horrible from people who've done it I mean, this is also like quite manually intensive as well. Yeah. And basically, there's no, no leg day, just a lot of arm day. <laughs> Once you go through the beautiful process of environmental soil sampling and processing, you will get, as we mentioned, a variety of ecofacts that will range from seeds to grains, mollusks, all the very small animal remains that we've been mentioning. And let's not forget the charcoal, which I will use as a, as a quick shout out to the archaeobotanists out there that can get a tiny piece of charcoal, put it under a microscope, and tell you which tree it's come from. Because that's just wizardy. Yeah, I mean, and I think in particular, if you're working on British sites, I feel like charcoal, kind of all over the place, maybe because I've worked in a lot of like Iron Age sites, so you get your charcoal at the same time as you're getting lots and lots of iron slag. Yeah, boy. It's a lot of a lot of that coming out of the ground. Not very exciting. Today. Yeah, but also like being able to identify it because of course the charcoal. Oh, like, that's wild. Like it, it, it was it was a tree before because it's been so sort of the structure has been so distorted by also the heating process and still being able to tell. Oh yeah, no, okay, that that came from a, an oak tree that I just tip my hat off to you. That's yeah. That I. I don't actually believe that science. I do think it's some kind of witchcraft because I just, I don't, I don't believe that you can do that. I'm sorry. As someone who's seen archaeological charcoal, there's no way. Okay. The first hot take of the episode. My I'm, I'm conspiracy sure that, theory. I'm sure that's in the, in, in the bingo somewhere. Archaeobotany is not real. That's my, my conspiracy theory for this episode. <laughs> Um, and of course, while we're on the subject of archaeobotany, well, uh, I'm wildly aware it is not an archaeobotany podcast, but it is something that is very helpful and indeed one of the main indicators, like evidence that we use for paleoenvironmental reconstruction. The seeds that you may be able to get from your soil samples, especially of the wild flora, can be quite useful in determining the sort of environment during which so the investigated time period may have looked like. So, you know, to make a very sort of broad example, finding water-loving plants will suggest a damp environment, which I guess in Britain won't say much, but it gets more specific than that. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting as well. I think, you know, we haven't, again, really talked about archaeobotany because it's not really a part of our podcast. But I think archaeobotany and zooarchaeology go pretty much hand in hand in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, obviously this paleoenvironmental reconstruction stuff, a lot of zooarchaeology goes towards kind of a, a broader environmental archaeology that would also encompass archaeobotany. So it, it, it goes hand in hand more than I think we really talk about it 
here on this podcast. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities as far as, you know, how you can find, say, seeds from a site. And identifying those seeds is really interesting because it can help us see the sort of, you know, spread or expansion of certain species in a similar way that we look at migration patterns for fauna. Again, I don't think it exists because it seems very hard. <laughs> well, yes, but like, I mean, like, just very specific, a lot of seeds and grains do look very much alike, except like this one small characteristic. And of course, you know, much like zooarchaeology, in archaeobotany, you have such a range of species that you're going to have to be well versed in and being able to identify you know, much in a way like in zoo archaeology, we don't just, you know, focus on the one species. We basically, we cover them all, like the, from the largest of mammals to the smallest of mammal, birds, fish, amphibians. If it's there, you have to analyze. Whether you want to or not. Well, but you gotta. <laughs> and speaking yeah. of things that you, you've gotta, but you don't wanna, unless you're, uh, again, very knowledgeable <laughs> on the topic, are mollusks. Because <laughs> again, mollusks are vital to paleo-environmental reconstruction as you know like certain mollusks get incredibly particular with regard to the environment they live in which same to be honest down to moistness shade levels you know like some of like have very very niche habitats so they can be quite useful except if you get like one of the annoying species they're like boros for up to two meters and for all you know is super intrusive so yeah looking right at you Chichilioides achicula. When I find shells and I excavate, I throw them in a bag and I hope that someone looks at them one day because it won't be me. <laughs> Again, like hats <laughs> off to people that do sort of shell, just again, like such a wild like variety of species, many of which looking incredibly similar. So you might have like two species looking very similar where one you know, it's very specifically tied to one environment while the other one just borrows to, to oblivion because it can. Extremely wild, to be completely honest. And maybe I'm a bit biased as someone who's mostly excavated, you know, coastlines and islands. You kind of find a lot of mollusks. Yes. A couple. In, in fact, entire shell middens. Just entire context of just shells it's hard and i mean like Don't. of course you know like on, on coastlands you, you you get that because you know they're quite easily accessible but you get them inland plenty unfortunately uh, yeah. <laughs> but we study none of these things but nope. again we thought we'd do a very quick aside because all of these are very important aspects to paleoenvironmental reconstruction and then and from there you wish i don't know is there an archaeobotany podcast out there if there isn't there should be just saying. I mean, we could do it. We just don't know anything about it. <laughs> like it, it, it we might do a disservice to archaeobotany. But, I mean, yes. one could argue we're doing a disservice to archaeology sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we don't study any of these sort of very fascinating sort of archaeology fields in their own right. So here we're going to be telling you more about how animal remains can also aid and form like another piece of the puzzle in paleoenvironmental reconstruction. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing is to kind of see it like, it's funny because archaeology is like puzzles within puzzles. You obviously have, you know, we're 
all of these things are trying to fill in the gaps and kind of fill out the narrative of the past in the broader archaeological record. But then you can get so specific. And that's why I do really like archaeology is I, it's funny because you can work at the big picture level at the same time as you can work at an extremely neat level as well. And I think that's fascinating and very interesting. And there's just so many ways that you can kind of do it. So it's interesting to see zoo archaeology as kind of the broader piece of archaeology, you know, what animals lived here, what they do with these animals, blah, blah, blah. But then putting it into another puzzle that's more about, well, what's like the broader environment like in this time, in this area. It's fun, I guess, sometimes. I guess on that note, we might take a little break before we dive into some more zoo archaeology and how that aids paleoenvironmental reconstruction. Hey, archaeology podcast fans. Anyone that's heard me on a show has likely heard me mention coffee one or probably a thousand times. Coffee, however awesome it is, has some downsides and should be consumed in moderation. That's why we partnered with Laird Superfoods. They've got lots of stuff, but their coffee and coffee creamers have been engineered to taste better, provide functional benefits, and don't contain any refined sugars. So are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code ARCPODNETFEED at checkout and save 15% on your purchase today. You can also click the link in your show notes. And we are back with Archaeo Animals. We're talking about paleo-environmental reconstruction today. And... Well, we spent the first segment talking about what it all is and, you know, all the various sub-disciplines that come together like a big puzzle to reconstruct past environments. So now let's talk more specifically about the stuff we kind of know a bit more about and talk about how zoo archaeology fits into all this. So as we discussed earlier and hinted at in all the previous episodes of this secret (laughs) miniseries, different animals... (laughs) my favorite kind of miniseries it's the secret that the miniseries you don't see coming but yes i mean different animal species mammalian avian amphibian or reptile will largely prefer certain habitats over others i mean who doesn't with some species preferring like fairly niche ones at that so therefore looking at the habitat ranges and preferences of a given species today and of course presuming that would have been the same 10,000 years ago which if their biologists remain the same more or less, you know, likely, it can inform the paleo environment that we're trying to reconstruct based on their presence or indeed their absence. So what we've done here is that we've put together some examples of species and the sort of environments you may find them in, including a few that are quite habitat susceptible. Yeah, so obviously we have talked about some of these, but they're just a bit more examples. So say amphibians, we have a whole episode. You can go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it yet. Now, we again, we've talked about this in the episode, but just to recap, their proximity to water is obviously what kind of makes them a pretty useful indicator for a paleoenvironmental reconstruction. And let's be honest, though, that's not the most groundbreaking thing in England. In fact, it's probably a fair guess. You could probably just make that assumption without looking at amphibian remains yeah, like, what can you tell us about this english field it's damp. <laughs> what about it two thousand years ago it's damp yeah i mean you know i mean i guess realistically the opposite would be a bit more groundbreaking at this point we found this microclimate in the northwest of england that was actually like a very sort of dry mediterranean landscape <laughs> 
I'm so, moving that. Um. For an example that's not British, though, there have been fossilized remains of the Suriname. Suriname? Suriname? Pipa species. Yes. Which Pipa is Italian for pipe. So this is okay. Interesting. And the beaked? Rinella species. Toads found in the Amazon rainforest, which have been used to develop paleoenvironmental reconstructions of the region during the Upper Miocene due to their very different behaviors relating to water. So the Suriname toads are actually found mostly near kind of stagnant bodies of water, while the beak toads are actually less dependent on watery uh, habitats to survive. So very contrasting species, but depending on where they were found and what context they were found, you know, temporal context they were found, uh, researchers have been able to kind of get a better idea of the kind of changes in climate the Amazon rainforest has gone through in the past. Which is really interesting. And also, it's just interesting to find a toad that's not really that dependent on water. Yeah, and also it is interesting for us to once again break out of our British shells. I'm trying. I'm just, I'm trying as best as I can, let me tell you. <laughs> on to, you know, from a change of that and getting on to, again, some more groundbreaking stuff. We have um, <laughs> rodents. So we have, like, uh, one of the most common, at least in Britain, being field voles, Bicrotus agrestis, which tend to like open field or hedges, which, to be honest, you know, the same goes for many mouse species, and it's sort of a similar story for the harvest mouse, the Micromis minutus, because, you know, there's about, at least in Britain, like three species of mouse, like the house mouse, the wood mouse, and the harvest mouse. But again, finding species that thrive in open fields and hedges, probably not exactly groundbreaking as far as Britain is concerned. However, say that you had a site in what is now a forest. I mean, very unlikely. Most of archaeology in Britain is developer-led. A lot of the trees are protected. Well, let's say that you have (laughs) an archaeological site in the middle of a forest and you find a lot of species that are more associated with open fields. And say, okay, that maybe sort of that woodland might be a little bit later. It might be established in the medieval period, but it actually used to be open fields beforehand. So, I mean, while we do tend to associate, you know, with Britain as sort of vastly open fields, the landscape has changed sort of fairly dramatically from like great deforestation events that are taking place in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age, and then the Romans came about and they thought they carry out some more deforestation. Yes, and then you have the, the establishment of medieval woodlands, but also some deforestation and just the cycle goes on. I mean, but the, the landscape has been altered a fair amount. And of course, you with the Enclosure Act, like the shape of the fields and uh, some of the hedgerows have also like changed a fair amount. But still, plenty of field voles about. But yeah, it's interesting as well because you know it sounds like that's you know not big deal. Okay, there used to be trees, now there's not. But obviously, there's so many kind of activities, human-led activities, obviously, but also species-dependent kind of changes that happen depending on what's well, a pretty big shift in landscape, and that obviously really alters the archaeological context around these sites and these regions. So it's actually, even though it may seem a bit, you know, oh, who cares? It's, it actually is extremely important to kind of get this detail, especially when you think about, you know, how much of a site we don't get in material remains that can be determined through stuff like this. I mean, absolutely. And it does have a knock-on effect at the more... Mm-hmm. 
well, I'll say macro level, macro level more in a way, like moving away from the small, like field vole and, and harvest mouse remains, but onto sort of the, yeah, the more macro level of your archaeological site. Because even in terms of livestock, the kind of environment that the settlement is in will also determine which kind of livestock is kept. So even though you do find your cows, your sheep and pigs sort of pretty much throughout, cattle and pig over sheep are more suited or can thrive in woodland habitats, sheep not so much, and sort of and depending on how the, the landscape has changed over time. So if, the, if it wasn't as much of pasture, it was more rugged terrain, goats would have been more suited as opposed to sheep. So it, it does have an impact even on your common domesticates that you may or may not find and why on this particular site they preferred cattle over pig. Of course, like that wouldn't necessarily be the only reason. There's a number of variables at play, but the kind of environment they have to play with may have also had an impact on which choice of domesticates to keep. Moving a bit above, literally, uh, field voles, migratory birds. So migration ranges, which we kind of talked about in this episode, they may have changed over time as the climate shifted. So, for example, various species of waterfowl from the uh, Anatidae. I never know how to say that. Anatidae? Yes. I did very poorly in Latin. Ducks. Ducks. The ducks. The ducks. Ducks. The ducks. They were found in late Pleistocene slash early Holocene context in Jordan and have actually shed further light on climate changes that may have caused the kind of wetland environment to become a little less inviting to migrating birds over time. Also, I don't know about you, there's certain species that make me feel weird when I think about them in the past, and I think ducks are one of them. Okay, hot take number two. Why do ducks make you feel weird? I don't know, just like saying like, oh, the ducks from the late Pleistocene, like that feels like a wild sentence, you know? But they were wild. Well, because I guess ducks, because they're sort of, you'd regard them as a common domesticate, thinking of like a wild duck out, out there in the late Pleistocene may sound bizarre. I have a PhD, folks. <laughs> You don't have to be mean, you know that? You don't have to bully. No bullying on this podcast. No one's ever done this on this podcast either. (laughs) I feel I should mention for people that have just joined us on this particular episode, this is a long-running inside joke from... Oh, it must be tens of episodes ago in which um, Alex had the realization that there were squirrels in Britain after like six years of living here. I only just got my proper glasses like last year. So just been walking around not being able to see. <laughs> Leave me alone. I don't know. I'm sorry that my American biases are so strong, okay? Anyway, no, we're just going to talk about how migratory birds remains on your site. They can be pretty cool, right? You turn. Um, Yes, uh, because, I mean, it's not not strictly paleo-environmentally related, but uh, you can find, you know, migratory birds at an archaeological site, you know, your usual sort of either summer or winter (laughs) visitors. The cool thing about it is that 
you know, provided the migratory times and ranges have remained the same over time, it gives you an indication of what time of the year the remains were deposited. You know, normally for your remains, you get a dating, you know, like late Roman. But what about late Roman in the summer? It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. So, yeah, it's not just that, though. There are other species that we still have today as well that are still very climate susceptible. So just some examples. Penguins. Svenishida species. My favorite animal. Now, modern penguin species are currently considered particularly susceptible to climate change for, you know, kind of obvious reasons. But this was also very true for penguins in the past as well. So during the Little Ice Age, which was a period of global cooling from 1400 to 1700, what about the uh, what about places in squirrels? Suggested a massive biological turnover in New Zealand. So you know where one species is replaced by another species. No, it's just for white hata. This is another one for your bingo cards, ladies and gentlemen. And all those in between, we have a. Squirrel appearing on your bingo card. Like Mark it off. Thank you. Replaced by the yellow-eyed penguin. Megadictus antipodis. That was expanding. Antipodis. There. Oh. <laughs> so, antipodis, 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 antipodis. I'm going with antipodis. I will trust you. Now, <laughs> the white penguin was expanding its habitat northward. <laughs> I can't believe and it's, it's a glasses thing, of course. Did you also, you, you also thought we had raccoons? We don't actually have penguin. raccoons. And eventually, unfortunately, that penguin species <laughs> would go extinct. Very strong. biological turnover. <laughs> right, sorry, go back to the place of squirrels. The, I mean ducks. The humble cod. Haha, <laughs> gadids. Um, gado species. Um, so fish, um, like cod, Another gadded species usually need a very specific temperature range for a successful life cycle, particularly spawning. So as such, the rising sea temperatures associated with climate change are pretty bad news for these fish. Did you see a trend here forming <laughs> before your eyes or before your ears rather? Which is also incidentally very quick aside as why zooarchaeology can also be very helpful for sort of applied biological sciences. Aside, over. So in determining baseline populations from zooarchaeological data, archaeologists have been able to see how past climate shifts, for example, the medieval warm period between 950 to 1250 AD, the Little Ice Age that um, Alex had just discussed, so these shifts in temperatures have impacted the size of gadded species, increasing during the warmer period and decreasing during the colder one. And I mean, as we said, that is true for gadids, of which cods are part, but also just a, a plethora of other fish species. Something we probably don't talk enough because, no. <laughs> and obviously for fish like cod, it's extremely important to kind of understand and know about as this kind of stuff impacts things like fisheries. And I believe the context which a lot of this research has been done has been done looking at medieval fishing habits and uh, fisheries and you know obviously with the climate change that was impacted by you know the size of gadids the kind of ability to even you know take in loads of fish it's again as simona kind of described it earlier it's a knockdown effect where if you understand kind of the environmental conditions it can explain a lot of things that were happening in the archaeological record that we can see, or even like, you know, as we get further into the medieval period, the kind of textual record that we may have. 
Now we have one last species to talk about, and it's I think we have talked about reindeer before. Must have done. Yes. Yes, but Rangifer tarandus. Because they're a very interesting species as far as not really domesticated. They are herded by the indigenous people up north, the Sami. And so they're a very interesting kind of case study of a species that's not really feral, but not necessarily domesticated. It's like semi-domesticated. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, we've talked about this in episodes, which there are plenty <laughs> that we talked about domestication. But, you know, domestication isn't necessarily a on and off switch. There are kind of shades of domestication, I guess. Different levels of domestication, maybe. But yeah, so reindeer with populations that are located in the Arctic and the subarctic regions of the world, unsurprisingly, very susceptible to the increasingly warming uh, environment up north. Who would have thought? Again, there's the going in here. But trends, trends. We're talking about... Climate change, bad. Hot, another hot take, apparently. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, climate change, bad. And um, yeah, it's affecting a lot of species. And, you know, I hate to say, you don't even have to look at the archaeological record to find out that information. I'll just tell you that right now. It's bad. And yeah, unfortunately, I guess we have not learned our lessons as far as climate change overall impacting not just us, but lots of other species. Anyway, tangent over, archaeological research on Sami land use have shown the potential impact of environmental changes on their reindeer herding. Again, I believe we've talked about Sami uh, land use and Sami reindeer herding in a previous episode, probably the one, one of our Where in the World episodes. Don't quote me on that, but probably. Um, but yeah, so there's been, you know, those two historical periods of climate change that we've talked about, because I think they're kind of the main periods of climate change that historians talk about, the medieval warm period and the little ice age, they may have actually impacted grazing for wild reindeer, which along with a couple other factors, including political border formations, may have actually caused the Sami to shift to a new form of nomadic pastoral economy in the mid 1700s. So again, lots of knockdown effects that we're talking about here and how they impact not just one species, but a lot of other species. And unfortunately, time is a flat circle and a lot of these species we talked about are still climate susceptible. So who knows, I guess, maybe in the hundreds and hundreds of years later, uh, other archaeologists will be able to have very similar stories about species from our time. And on that downer of a note, we will take a break and we will talk about case studies when we come back. And we are back with archaeo animals. We're talking about paleo environmental reconstruction and we are at the case studies. Although this kind of episode really kind of meant that we were just doing loads of mini case studies in a way. Also, maybe like the whole episode is like one big case study. Because I mean, we covered all the, the various species of the various orders in the previous episodes, and that's how it all comes together and how you reconstruct the environment. So it's kind oh of a... Oh my gosh. Case studies in case studies. C case studyception. I was going to say, if it was like 2011, I'd make that joke. But then you made the joke. Sorry. Uh, no, no, I'm, I, I live under a rock. <laughs> <laughs> Last week I discovered a meme from 10 years ago. Simona, do you know what year it is? Uh, 
it, it, Simona's it, just discovered she can get like one megabyte per download, <laughs> like one megabit download speed. There's this new thing called broadband. It's very fast. It's faster than the 56k modem I have. I am your same age. I will have you know. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know, and I'm keeping up with the memes. So just saying. Well, it just means I got to enjoy it ten years later. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you know, we can't not have at least a, a segment that's case studies, and we've got two pretty hefty ones. So our first case study is, it's not really a paleoenvironmental reconstruction case study. It's kind of more about, you know, what we've been talking about, which is how certain species are susceptible to climate and climate change, and how that could be a really useful trait for examining population migrations, extinctions, introductions, loads of things. So enter the European, now here's the thing, the European pond terrapin, turtle, tortoise? Like I, I believe it's a terrapin. I've heard, I, as you know, doing the research for this, I have seen all three of those used. <laughs> I have never been more confused in my life. Well, put it this way, because turtle, I think, is a purely marine turtle. Mm-hmm with tortoise being a terrestrial one. Mm. I believe our friend here is kind of more of an amphibian, well, not an amphibian, but, you know... It's a frog? Amphibious type. <laughs> As in, uh, it, 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 can, it can be on land for a little bit. It doesn't mind being in water for a little bit. So I would go with a, a, a terrapin-like. Ugh, it's so confusing. <laughs> well, it's it's... It's a turtle that likes to be in the water, but can also climb out of the water, unlike a turtle turtle, which can't go out of the water. And a tortoise that can't really go swim in the water. But what's its Latin name? Uh, it's like Latin roulette here. It's Emis Orbicularis. Thank you. But yeah, I mean, just a, a sneak peek behind the curtain when Simona mention this as a potential case study i had a full down a full-blown meltdown trying to figure out what this was because i looked up european pond tortoise i was like there's nothing here really there's a turtle and then i found a terrapin i was losing my mind it was really difficult <laughs> i mean i had a bit of a moment myself in which i was unable to break out of my british shell or, or carapace i guess <laughs> oh gosh. because I was focusing with spoilers with this species sort of extinction with regards to Britain and trying to find like materials that would just cover sort of its presence and extinction in Britain, not realizing that the extinction event also went a little bit wider than that. So maybe that was it. Yeah, we were we're not that special, it turns out. I mean, on one hand, it's a very interesting case study to talk about what you know, migrations and how we can use these this climate sus- uh, susceptible kind of features to look at how species may migrate from one region to another eventually. On the other hand, yeah, I was <laughs> very confused trying to find more information about the British pond turtle. 
which was not British. It was European. And it's not a turtle. It's a terrapin. Exciting. <laughs> Exciting. The European pond turtle. The European pond turtle, but not turtle turtle. Ugh. Animals are hard, folks. I don't know if you've gotten that vibe from this podcast yet, but it's really hard sometimes. Anyway, this terrapin is unique in that environmental factors, particularly temperature, strongly impact its development. With research on more modern populations, which again, spoiler alert, it's extinct in some places, not all places, which makes it even more confusing sometimes. But yeah, so research on modern populations of the European pond terrapin indicate that variances in temperature can impact the body size, even the clutch size of turtles or terrapin and their offspring. Climate also impacts the survivability rate of juvenile terrapins when they, you know, hatch and things like that. Yes, I guess in combining zoological remains of the pond terrapin uh, <laughs> via ADNA and radiocarbon dating with other environmental data, such as, you know, temperature comes to mind, researchers such as Robert S. Summer have been able to track the movement of the species throughout the Holocene. So as temperatures rose around the world during the early Holocene, the time was ripe for the expansion of the pond terrapin. <laughs> moving, from, <laughs> moving from glacial regions of the Balkans towards regions such as Britain, Central Europe and Scandinavia. However, like fast forward midway through the Holocene, so about 6,000 years ago, everything was still fine. because That was <laughs> called the Holocene Climatic Optimum, so or the mid-Holocene warm period in which temperatures reached its highest. Unfortunately, that was very long-lived, and it started to decline again. Um, this was also where the range of pond turtle populations was at its historic maximum. Terrapin. 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 Before they decided, actually, no, we're out of here. It's a bit too chilly for my liking. So during the schooling period, we see the extinction of pond turtles in northern regions, such as Scandinavia and Britain. And they all moved, well, or more like the ones that are still extant, are in Southern Europe, North Africa, and Western parts of Asia, where it's a little bit warmer. Folks, could you tell that in our notes for this episode, someone who will re remain anonymous wrote turtle? <laughs> if, if some folks, if some researchers out there, we'd love to get to like the bottom of if it's a terrapin, a turtle or a tortoise, like for sure, please do so and then get back to us so we can re-record this episode, perhaps. <laughs> okay, definition of a terrapin. But okay, well, that's that... not a good noise. <laughs> well, it's like terrapins are one of several small species of turtle. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> it's not um, our fault. It's the biologists. That's their fault. I guess it's while they don't form a taxonomic unit per se, I mean, in terms of habitat, they do live in largely fresh water. So in the case of a European pond terrapin, <laughs> the, the best way I can describe it is, is an amphibious turtle. Not amphibian of the order of amphibians, but amph amphibious as an adjective. As in, it, it does stay predominantly in the water, but it climbs on the surface as well, particularly to sunbathe, which they do love. Big mood. <laughs> I mean, anyway. yes. 
We will we will move away from the taxonomic debate, which is far beyond our actual kind of expertise, I feel like. <laughs> I just look um, at the bones. I mean, to end the episode, we'll take a look, uh, like, very swift difference from a nice and warm climate to cold and dry climate. Spoiler again. We'll look at how Paula Villa and other archaeologists were able to use not just zoo archaeology, but also other archaeological methods to reconstruct the paleo environment of an upper Pleistocene hyena den located in Boiroche, France. Okay? Ooh, ooh, fancy pronunciation. <laughs> Quick site background the site was mixed in terms of evidence. You'd have both human and hyena remains and sort of other species are sort of associated with the former and latter. But let's break down the various methods towards paleoenvironmental reconstruction that were used here. So you have, of course, the zooarchaeology to the identification of the microfauna, of oh, the macrofauna, <laughs> that, of course, has helped shape the broader sort of interpretation of the site as a hyena den, of course, you have, well, Hyena remains, Hyenas, hyena yeah. remains and their prey, so such as bovids, cervids. Bison and horse remains also help suggest some environmental characteristics associated with their contexts, that being sort of an open, a colder climate with an open landscape at the time of death. However, it's the microfauna, predominantly the amphibians and the reptiles, but also some rodents and insectivores, that helped with sort of shaping the paleoenvironmental reconstruction for this site. The rodents and insectivores, which were mainly deposits from local birds of prey, or potentially collected by hyenas as well, give an idea of the surrounding climate based on species representation. So several species, such as the narrow-skulled vole, never heard of that vole before, Microtus stenocranius gregalis, stenocranius narrow-skull, makes sense, are all mainly sort of adapted to cold environments. However, just, just to spice it up, there are also species from more temperate climates, such as the common bent-winged bat, Minopterus schreibersi. So as such, it's possible the surrounding environment was cold, but not too cold. Which is actually, like, a really cool thing to be able to figure out, to be honest. Like, you could probably, I don't think the paper really went this far, because I think it kind of gets a bit fanciful if you try to go this far but i feel like you could probably almost get it down to like actual degrees you know if you probably are with certain species i mean i don't know much about bat biology yeah <laughs> because one thing that they've looked at as well is the taphonomy so unsurprisingly taphonomic analysis was also handy in determining sort of the broader identity of the site due to the amount of gnaw marks found on the prey remains so interestingly, using modern-day comparative materials, potential differentiation could be, could, could be made between adult and juvenile hyena gnawing, giving then further evidence to the notion that it was a den for both young and old individuals. That, you know, and alongside analysis of the deciduous hyena teeth that were also found sort of in stratified context. I'm also very interested in that, in being able to identify between adult and juvenile gnawing. Like, I can imagine how that works in like a theoretical kind of thing but i don't like all the gnawing i, I ever find is pretty you know not the, the best preserved and you're basically lucky enough to be like well that's x species you know 
Sure, because I guess he'll depend on the gnawing, because if you just get sort of the pitting, but then again, like, I'm not very well versed in hyena gnawing patterns, because, I mean, I wish, but I guess aside from the normal pitting, you know, with hyenas actually sort of chewing and crushing bones, because they do have quite the jaw power, I guess depending on sort of the the shape of the breakages and, like, if any sort of tooth impressions are left, you may be able to reconstruct whether they were you know, based on tooth position, whether it would have been like a, a, this deciduous teeth doing that. We're normally, you know, like in a lot of animals, sort of their sort of deciduous fourth premolar tends to be sort of very similar to a molar because they're kind of using it as one while their molars actually erupt. That's my uneducated opinion. It's nitty gritty though, not to, you know, pun in- intended, but it is like the, the nitty gritty of kind of how we do paleo environmental reconstruction it's the little tiny things that add up to you know maybe doesn't may not seem like an important detail but knowing say that you had adult and juvenile hyena living in this den kind of gives you a better idea of the identity of this site which then puts it into a broader context which is where the environment is and we find out a bit more about that when we bring archaeo or I guess in this case, paleobotany into the mix. So pollen was taken from sediment samples, from moss, and from coprolite samples from very similar uh, stratigraphic layers. So they're all roughly from a similar kind of time period. And it identified flora samples, including pine trees. Penis species. (laughs) Well, you could have done that one. <laughs> no, you have to do it. Uh, plants from the Artemisia genus and plants from the Plantago genus. So all this pollen from these various plants suggests, again, a, a very cold, but also a very dry climate. And to kind of, you know, wrap it all up, there was also some geoarchaeology done. And I don't think we've ever talked about geoarchaeology on this podcast I had very dear friends who did uh, my master's with me, who mostly did geoarchaeology. And again, I don't know if it's real. It seems like magic to do anything with rocks and soil and stuff. Anyway, so deep sea core data was taken from the Bay of Biscay to provide further context of the surrounding region. So even we're broadening our kind of you know, analysis even further uh, using marine isotope and pollen analyses. Although a more diverse assemblage of flora species was determined from this core data, ultimately it again showcased a similar surrounding environment that was mainly cold and mainly dry. So but not too cold. But not too cold, obviously. Basically, evidence from across these various different approaches suggested that we have a hyena den located in a cold and dry environment with open landscape. Although it was a cold environment, it was warmer than what's been observed in sites further up north. So both the fauna and flora species are compatible to those found in Central European steppe environments. Overall, that suggests that we are looking at the development of a step environment in this region at this time. So yeah, bit of a, a long way to get to this, but I figured this case study was a good way to show how zooarchaeology, you can take so much information from that, but it's also just one part, but a valuable part, 
part and a very useful part of a much larger complex method of archaeological application within paleoenvironmental reconstruction. It's basically all these different elements kind of agreeing with each other and that helps the interpretation. And you know that you could say that about all of archaeology to be honest. The archaeology helps with the human remains which helps with the artifacts and so on and so forth. And even those people who for some reason want to do landscape and you know, building archaeology. I don't get that, but you do you. But we all help each other at the end of the day. That's a positive note. <laughs> well, like little pieces of the puzzle that together form the big, big puzzle that is archaeology. Yay, we did it. <laughs> That's the most positive you'll hear from me on this podcast, I think. <laughs> anyway, as always, you can find us online at the Archaeology uh, Podcast Network websites where you can listen to our podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, where I assume most of you are listening to. But while you're listening to us, make sure you subscribe or follow our show, as well as give us a review, tell your friends about us, you know, all the other stuff that you do if you're social and have friends. I wouldn't know. And we're also on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. Let us know how you feel about these episodes. Do you want us to do more? Do you like secret miniseries? Were you just so surprised about this miniseries that you just kind of toppled over and didn't hear the whole episode? I don't know. (laughs) Simona, this is not that funny. (laughs) But that's it from us, folks. As always, I'm Alex Fitzpatrick. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. .com.